The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. We are back with a handful of poems here. This first will come from the British poet Roy Fisher, who lived from 1930 to 2017. And this is a poem about uh, a boyhood memory of his from the Blitz. And he says this. This is called The Entertainment of War. I saw the garden where my aunt had died and her two children and a woman from next door. It was like a burst pod filled with clay. A mile away in the night, I had heard the bombs sing and then burst themselves between cramped houses, with bright, soft flashes and sounds like banging doors. The last of them crushed the four bodies into the ground, scattered the shelter and blasted my uncle's corpse over the housetop and into the street beyond. Now the garden lay stripped and stale. The iron shelter spread out its separate petals around a smooth clay saucer, small and so tidy it seemed nobody had ever been there. When I saw it, the house was blown clean by blast and care. Relations had already torn out the new fireplaces. My cousin's pencils lasted me several years. And in his office notepad that was given me, I found solemn drawings in crayon of blondes without dresses. In his lifetime, I had not known him well. Those were the things I noticed at ten years of age. Those and the four hearses outside our house, the chocolate cakes and my classmates' half-shocked envy. But my grandfather went home from the mortuary and for five years tried to share the noises in his skull. Then he walked out and lay under a furze bush to die. When my father came back from identifying the daughter, He asked us to remind him of her mouth. We tried. He said, I think it was the one. These were marginal people I had met only rarely, and the end of the whole household meant that no grief was seen. Never have people seemed so absent from their own deaths. This bloody episode of four whom I could understand better dead, gave me something I needed to keep 
a long story moving. I had no pain of it, can find no scar even now. But had my belief in the fiction not been thus buoyed up, I might, in the sigh and strike of the next night's bombs, have realized a little what they meant, and for the first time been afraid. A few things come to mind with that. The first is just the uh, wonderful line, terrible and wonderful line, at the end of a whole household, meant that no grief was seen, uh, an entire family dying all at once. Um, the other is that uh, I will be reading here soon reports uh, in one of the first-person episodes, reports from people living through the Blitz in London, and it does seem uh, that the uh, 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 keep calm and carry on was a, is, is an accurate phrase, but also just that they became used to it as this, as Roy Fisher imagines himself as a little boy. Um, you see relatives of yours blown to pieces, but you don't imagine that they will be coming for you and at some point you aren't quite afraid. And the other is, I don't know anything about Roy Fisher. I don't know if he uh, wrote prose or not, or memoirs at all, but it would be striking to, to find out if he ever wrote about this memory in a, did he ever use it for a short story? Did he ever write about it autobiographically in an essay? And it seems that uh, taking a memory like this, uh, putting it from the point of view of a child, and every now and then pulling back and saying something like, um, those were the things I noticed at 10 years of age. Uh, pulling back from the point of view and then going back in again from the point of view of a 10-year-old. Um, and then pulling back again from the point of view of an adult. It seems that is what poetry can do. And uh, I'd be interested to see if that's what Fisher thought as well. Perhaps he tried to write this in prose and it only found its right shape, its right voice as a poem of about a page and a half when under other circumstances someone might try to turn that into an essay of a few pages or something of the kind. The next poem is by an American and this is William Carlos Williams, who lived from 1883, excuse me, to 1963. And uh, at the beginning of the anthology that I'm reading from, uh, there's a quote from William Carlos Williams, and it says, the objective of writing is to reveal. It is not to teach, not to advertise, and not to sell. And uh, that is close enough to something I've said here before, which is um, do not sell, uh, do not uh, buy and do not sell with your writing. And that is at least with your poetry. And that seems to say something there. Uh, poetry, uh, writing, I guess, and poetry especially, does not teach in an ethical way how to be a better person but I suppose what it does is uh, it gives you insight into how people live. And you would assume, 
although it is no guarantee, that if you have a greater sense of how people live, how people survive, and how these experiences are put into lasting language, um, it should be uh, a result that you might be a better person, but uh, that is not always the case. Um, as I think uh, the critic George Steiner put it a while ago, uh, one of the problems that the, uh, again, to go back to World War II, one of the problems that the Nazi regime brings up is, uh, is the old question, by now it's the old question of how a culture that, uh, uh, that knew Bach and Goethe and all the rest of it, all these heights of culture, were able to do such things. And that is, uh, George Steiner's answer seemed to be that on some level, on some uh, dangerous uh, liminal level of culture and civilization, uh, those things, rather than enlightening us or making us more humane, can actually have the opposite effect. Uh, culture can make us worse people and uh, civilization can make us uh, barbarous in a way. But in any case, uh, William Carlos Williams, this is his wonderful, uh, this is a fairly early poem, yeah. It appeared in 1913. Um, so for those who aren't aware, he practiced medicine in Rutherford, New Jersey, and where he, bo where he was born and where he died. And so... He never did the bohemian thing. Uh, he always had his day job as a doctor. And as the note says here, he often wrote at night or wrote in between patients. And he jotted down lines and notes for his poems on his prescription pads. Um, so the, the issue that I've been raising here many times, Homer taking out the garbage, uh, might as well be how did Bill Williams uh, care for his patients. Well, he seems to have done it very well. Um, he found a way to do that. And this is his wonderful early poem, Dance Russe. If, if I, when my wife is sleeping, and the baby and Kathleen are sleeping, and the sun is a flame-white disk in silken mists above shining trees, if I in my north room dance naked, grotesquely before my mirror, waving my shirt round my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely, I was born to be lonely, I am best so. If I admire my arms, my face, my shoulders, flanks, buttocks against the yellow drawn shades, who shall say I am not the happy genius? of my household. And that is short enough and wonderful enough to read again. Dance Russe. If I, when my wife is sleeping and the baby and Kathleen are sleeping, and the sun is a flame-white disk and silken mists above shining trees, if I, in my north room, dance naked, grotesquely before my mirror, waving my shirt round my head and singing softly to myself, I am lonely, lonely, I was born to be lonely, I am best so. 
If I admire my arms, my face, my shoulders, flanks, buttocks against the yellow drawn shades, who shall say I am not the happy genius of my household? And so if you ask yourself the question then, how does William Carlos Williams deal with being a poet and a doctor and a father, I suppose this poem is one answer, and that is to have uh, a very, to, to, not, uh, to, not, to not try to squash the intense burning inner and private life and to uh, embrace it and find it uh, whenever you can. But also, as the first two lines say, do not forget about your wife and your baby and Kathleen as well. That's a great little poem. This next one is from Emily Bronte. Let me pull up her ears. Uh, 1818 to 1848. This is uh, the sister, of course, of Charlotte Bronte. And Emily is much better known for her novel, of course, uh, Wuthering Heights. This is one of her poems, a good one for, uh, for the wintertime here. The night is darkening round me. The wild winds coldly blow, but a tyrant spell has bound me and I cannot, cannot go. The giant trees are bending, their bare boughs weighed with snow, and the storm is fast ascending, and yet I cannot go. Clouds beyond clouds above me, wastes beyond wastes below, but nothing drear can move me. I will not, cannot go. And somewhere in there I was waiting for uh, Robert Frost's line, uh, I have miles to go before I sleep, uh, but promises to keep, etc. Sounds something like that. Someone needs to be going, but they can't. Someone wants to go, but they are unable to, and they're pausing or they're stuck. Just read that one more time. This is a nice little, almost a song. The night is darkening round me. The wild winds coldly blow. But a tyrant spell has bound me, and I cannot, cannot go. The giant trees are bending, their bare boughs weighed with snow, and the storm is fast descending, and yet I cannot go. Clouds beyond clouds above me, wastes beyond wastes below, but nothing drear can move me. I will not cannot go. And it goes, uh, it's sort of a mystery. It goes from the tyrant spell that has bound me, and you think that is what is causing her not to be able to go. But by the last two lines, it is, nothing drear can move me, I will not, cannot go. This next one is uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. This is the first of his that I've read on this podcast at all. And he lived from 1772 until 1834. 
and this is a poem that was written in 1825. This is a poem called Work Without Hope. And it says this, All nature seems at work. Slugs leave their lair, the bees are stirring, the birds are on the wing, and winter, slumbering in the open air, wears on his smiling face a dream of spring. And I, the while, the sole unbusy thing, nor honey make, nor pair, nor build, nor sing, yet well I can the banks where amaranths blow have traced the fount whence streams of nectar flow. Bloom, O ye amaranths, bloom for whom ye may. For me ye bloom not, glide rich streams away. With lips unbrightened, wreathless brow I stroll. And would you learn the spells that drowse my soul? Work without hope draws nectar in a sieve, and hope without an object cannot live. And that too, I think, is worth reading one more time. Work Without Hope by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. All nature seems at work. Slugs leave their lair. The bees are stirring, birds are on the wing. And winter, slumbering in the open air, wears on his smiling face a dream of spring. And I, the while, the sole unbusy thing, nor honey make, nor pair, nor build, nor sing. Yet well I ken the banks where amaranths blow, have traced the fount whence streams of nectar flow. Bloom, O ye amaranths, bloom for whom ye may, for me ye bloom not, glide rich streams away. With lips unbrightened, wreathless brow I stroll. And would you learn the spells that drowse my soul? Work without hope draws nectar in a sieve, and hope without an object cannot live. And that is, what is that quite? Uh, finding your place uh, in a world, in this case, the natural world, where you begin to wonder, is watching enough? Is uh, not really knowledge, but just is awareness and observation enough uh, in the face of these things that you are observing? Uh, all nature seems at work. Is it enough to be a person there watching and apparently doing nothing of any practical, uh, nothing practical at all, just observing these things. And yet at the end, work without hope draws nectar in a sieve. It seems that we should be able to do this work of poetry or do this work of observation without expecting anything in return. We shouldn't uh, uh, think of ourselves as slugs leaving their lair, or bees stirring, or birds on the wing, or of winter giving way to spring. We should be able to just watch 
these things happening, and that should be its own substance. I don't know. A wonderful little poem. And the last one here is a poem by Alexander Pope, who lived from 1688 to 1744. And I don't know if this is a misprint or not. I don't know how you uh, would, uh, how this could be an error, but uh, the footnote to the poem says that uh, it has been estimated that the poem was written about the year 1700 when Alexander Pope was not quite 12. Uh, now, I ask anybody out there if they were writing a poem like this when they were not quite 12. This is Alexander Pope's Ode on Solitude. Happy the man whose wish and care a few paternal acres bound, content to breathe his native air in his own ground, whose herds with milk, whose fields with bread, whose flocks supply him with attire, whose trees in summer yield him shade in winter fire. Blessed who can unconcernedly find hours, days, and years slide soft away, in health of body, peace of mind, quiet by day, sound sleep by night, study and ease together mixed, sweet recreation, and innocence which most does please with meditation. Thus let me live unseen, unknown, thus unlamented let me die, steal from the world and not a stone tell where I lie. And it's not really the, uh, you might say, the first impression uh, of the, uh, the form of the poem, how well it, uh, how well it uh, holds its rhyme and its rhythm together, that makes me astonished that someone could have written this before they were 12, or not quite 12. Uh, it's what seems to me is underneath this, and that is that uh, Alexander Pope, not quite 12, seems to have learned the lesson that we all might learn these days in 2022, which is that sleep by night, study and ease and balance and uh, uh, Ease, I guess, is the good word here, uh, isn't really what we should be seeking for. Um, it sounds pleasant, but if you put it in a poem like this and then end it the way that Alexander Pope does, I'm not sure that the voice is quite being serious here. Let me read it one more time, and perhaps this is just my own bias here. Happy the man whose wish and care a few paternal acres bound, content to breathe his native air in his own ground, whose herds with milk, whose fields with bread, whose flocks supply him with attire, whose trees in summer yield him shade and winter fire. Blessed who can unconcernedly find hours, days, and years slide soft away in health of body peace of mind, quiet by day, sound sleep by night, study and ease, 
together mixed sweet recreation and innocence, which most does please with meditation. And the more I read this, uh, without reading the last stanza yet, the more I read this, it's a lull. Um, it went from being beautiful almost the first time I read it to being something that puts you to sleep and is kind of, when you talk about it, actually when you envision it in your mind and turn it into a rhyme, it actually sounds boring. And I wonder if that's what he was trying to do. So that you get to the last stanza and it says, Thus let me live unseen, unknown. Thus unlamented let me die. Steal from the world and not a stone. Tell where I lie. Now, if that, if that poem was written in 1700, about 240 or so years later, Robinson Jeffers out on the west coast of America with his uh, hand-built uh, stone house and his tower uh, may well have written uh, a poem like that. Let me die, let me go away from the world, and let no stone tell where I have lived and where I am lying now. And he would have meant it. Uh, he had lived through enough of life and come to his own conclusions about things that he would have meant that seriously. I'm done with this world, I am done with life, and people in it, and I am going away, and I'm dying. But I think that somehow, at the age of not quite 12, Pope is ending the poem that way, but that is not what it's saying. It's saying, I am not really sure that that sounds right for me. And, uh, a sort of half-hearted, there's a smirk behind there. In any case, that is, is that five poems? Five poems for the day. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.